You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Everything's going to creep. It's like a TLC video out here. Welcome to another special midterm episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined today by Tara Golshin and Jane Koston, who you may know from Fridays. Yes, um, I appear on Fridays. Tara, for many of our midterm episodes, congressional things, stuff like that, we want to talk about the state of the Republican Party as we are now three weeks or three weeks minus one day out from the midterms since, you know, they have been governing the country and struggled for for most of the year with this. And to to start that off, I kind of want to turn the clock like way back, like a year or more ago to a time when there was still palpable tension between the Trump White House and congressional leadership over a whole bunch of things. And Steve Bannon was pitching the idea of sort of one to many Donald Trumps, where he was going to lead uh, a series of insurgencies against Mitch McConnell, dethrone a huge rank of establishment candidates. And in the case of Roy Moore, this worked, but it it didn't work so well because right. it wound up with the Republicans losing losing a Senate seat in Alabama. And it seemed to raise the prospect of sort of a, a replay of some of the 2010 recruiting fiascos right. on the Republican side. Right. I think that some people were looking back to kind of the Christine O'Donnell experience. And it's interesting because when Bannon talked about this with the New York Times in September of 2017, his whole plan was to target Republican senators in Mississippi, Arizona, and Nevada, and that by bringing down Luther Strange, he had kind of proven that, ah, you know, Roy Moore is this ascendant politician. And then Steve Bannon went to Alabama, talked about how him going to Harvard was better than Joe Scarborough going to the University of Alabama. Doug Jones wins. And I think the bigger story, though, is that you saw Kelly Ward lost in Arizona. You saw the battle over who was Trumpier isn't as important when everyone's kind of Trumpy and everyone can talk about how, like, we want to help Trump do things. So, you know, when it's Kelly Ward and Joe Arpaio battling over who hates brown people more, Martha McSally could be like, I'm an actual politician and I love Trump, and that can lead you to a a win. I think rewinding a little, too, you can see there was some initial impact that Bannon had, right? You saw 
him say he wanted to target states like Tennessee and and Corker and Flake seemed kind of like the death of the never Trumper. He obviously ran into some major problems when he got Roy Moore to be the candidate. I mean, it seems like the Trump White House, right, with Bannon out of the White House and Trump establishing a better working relationship with congressional leaders, like Trump pretty clearly got off that train, right? Like Arizona Democrats, I know, had gotten very excited about the prospect of facing Kelly Ward or Joe Arpaio in a Senate race there and very not excited about facing Martha McSally because – You know, she had represented a swing district in the House. Her biography, she was like a pioneering woman, fighter pilot. It's like perfectly designed to sort of diffuse some of the like professional women's surge toward toward Democrats. But she got kind of Trumpy, as Jane was saying. And Trump uh, learned to to love winning elections, right? right? Like, she was clearly the better candidate. And even though Trump would, like, go way outside the pardon process to help out his buddy Joe Arpaio, he, like, very pointedly did not endorse him. Yeah, I I think it's interesting because Steve Bannon, you know, I've written on this and a lot of people have written on this. Steve Bannon really believes and now has taken his talents to Europe to kind of spread the news that there's a thing called Trumpism, that there is a political ideology that is separate from the Republican Party, separate from conservatism, that is Trumpism. And Trump himself appears to have just kind of given up on that and just kind of said, like, if you like me, I like you. We're okay. And so I think that while Steve Bannon is off wandering around the wilds of Europe being turned down by the European far right, Trump himself has recognized by his endorsements in races across the country and in his work with congressional Republicans that it's better to just win rather than attempt to prove a point that he doesn't even really care about. Right. And and then conversely, I mean, you saw like with Flake and Corker sort of exiting stage left, there's no anti-Trumpy sentiments in any of these primaries, right? So like you could have your your McSallies, your Dean Hellers, people who don't who like if you look at their whole record in public life, it's not like super suggestive that this is who they are. Or even somebody like Ted Cruz, right, who like very pointedly like I think called Donald Trump an amoral sociopath and Trump called him Lion Ted. They're not like in love with each other, but there's no hint of resistance or conflict or contrast there. And you see that in races like in in Florida, right, you had a governor's primary between basically two, like, regular politicians, right? Like, Roger Sanchez was a House member. He was Who was he running against? Do you remember? He was the Agriculture Putnam. Commissioner. Yeah, Adam Putnam, a former House member, Agriculture Commissioner. And they both just talked about how much they loved Donald Trump, but Donald Trump loves Ron DeSantis more. Right. To your point about how there's not a resistance movement to Trump that's winning. Everybody's Trumpy. It's just a matter of of how they're selling that. I think Tennessee's governor's race in the primary was a really good example of this. You had Diane Black, who was this very establishment Republican candidate, and she was expected to win. She had kind of the backing of, of establishment Republican people, but she felt that she had to run to Trump's side and become this kind of firebrand conservative in the state. And what you saw instead was the kind of when she was duking it out over like who's Trumpier, it, it was like the quieter loves Trump, but also focused on on being a good candidate uh-huh. guy that won. Right. 
And we're seeing that over and over. That happened in Indiana, too. Right. Um, for the Senate race between Rokita and, and Luke Messer. And that's, I think, like part of what Jane was talking about, right? It's It's very personal. Right. Right. So, like, the question of, like, were you at some point in your dark past a never-Trumper has sort of come up frequently. But there isn't especially the demand that candidates conduct themselves the way that Donald Trump does, right? So it's like you you don't see a lot of, you know, horse-faced tweets from other Republican politicians. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, our colleague Ellen Nielsen did a rundown of some ads, and we've seen this a couple of times, and I think, Tara, you've also written on, like, Duncan Hunter being like, my opponent is a danger to America, or, like, granted, I think campaign advertising is its own separate genre of how you talk about politics, but I think that there has been some degree of kind of attempting to take Trumpism or the Trumpiness. I mean, I don't mean Trumpism as like the political project. I mean, Trumpism as in calling people horse face and yelling a lot, trying to take that into kind of state level races. And right. I think that there's been some degree of that that we've seen. But I mean, like, I think if you look at what are the politicians who have profited the most from sort of relationship with Trump on the Republican side, it's like people who have aggressively defended Donald Trump on television. Right. It's not exactly that like whether you're talking about like Jim Jordan or Matt Gates or, or Ron DeSantis, you're not talking about people who mimic Trump. Right. Right. They're people who suck up to Trump, which is a different thing, you know, like because like Trump himself is like not a team player. Right. But it's like what he wants out of the Republican Party and what I feel like he's increasingly getting is a Republican Party that is very, very personally loyal to Donald Trump, like says really, really nice things about him, calls Bob Mueller's inquiry fake news, you know, like like that kind of thing. I mean, you have I forget the words you use, like like a distinction about this, like Trumpism versus Trumpians. So in the before Vox times, I actually wrote a piece for National Review about how there had been this construction of Trumpism as being, you know, it's populism, it's anti-authority, it is a rejection of elitist conservatism, it is a a bottom-up movement, it has more to do with really focusing on defense, but also increasing the welfare state for certain people. Trumpianness is calling your opponent a horse face or insulting their wife or accusing them of being a danger to the U.S. despite them, like, having a security clearance or, you know, taking pictures of black members of Congress and posting it on Twitter and saying, like, here's what you need to know, conservatives, or something like that. There's Trump- What was that? That happened during the uh, Kavanaugh hearings that I can't remember who it was, but he took a picture of Kamala Harris and Cory Booker and just was like, this is all you need to know. And I was like, they're in Congress being congressional. So Trumpism as a political project, a political entity, that was something that Steve Bannon came up with. That's the Journal of of American Greatness. That's kind of the Flight 93 election people who had constructed this whole idea of what Trumpism was. Now, granted, 
a lot of this was a lot of projection. You know, I wrote that they kind of treated Donald Trump as this tabula rasa upon which they could project all of their views and hatreds about the Republican Party onto, while Trump would just say things like, everyone's going to have health care and make America great again. But then Trumpianness has turned out to be a much more far-reaching project, which is just insult your opponent and ignore any norms or guardrails and just go hog wild with that kind of thing. So that, that's kind of how I differentiate. <laughs> but, I mean, there's a real sense in which the economic populist angle to Trump has, like, died on the vine. Right. Right. Like, there's nobody pushing that exactly elsewhere in the party, even as, like, Trump himself keeps doing some trade stuff that we sometimes talk about, like, that seems to be still the issue in which he has the least support on Capitol Hill. Right. I mean, we're repeatedly seeing on Capitol Hill this calculation that as long as we praise Trump and say we're with him and then can do our own thing, that will work. Right. So it's an interesting kind of fusion in which the once evident tensions have vanished— And he's gotten what I guess is most important to him out of this, which is it seems like he has more and more congressional support for, like, batting down various investigations and possibly firing Jeff Sessions. But, like, no sense of, like, a Trump influence on the legislative agenda, right? Right. So this week the Associated Press had an interview with with Trump, and he had a very telling – quote in there that says, a lot of people come up to me and say, I will never vote in the midterms because you're not on the ballot and you don't seem to like Congress. And it's telling of that kind of early tension that Trump had with Congress that has largely kind of gone away. And now, to your point, is that he's more kind of focused on winning. So he's finding himself being like, no, 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 I like Congress. You need to vote for us. I like to win. So I think that's kind of the dynamic that we're seeing. And I mean, just today he he tweeted, right, like just so as we were starting to, to record, like Republicans need to make our horrible border laws and immigration a factor in the midterms. Right. And it's like a strange kind of political commentary. Like I, there's a lot of people out there with like a thousand followers and like strong opinions. I'm like, <laughs> Democrats need to make this an issue in the midterms. Right? Like, right. If you're the president of the United States, you just do it. Right. I think one of my, and when I say favorite things, I don't mean in a good way. I just mean it's a thing I like observing is that Trump talks about his own administration as if he is merely observing it from his home. And so he'll be like, oh, how can this be happening? I'm like, you're the president of the United States. You are literally how it is happening. You are the chief executive. That's that's your job. Right. And I mean, it's interesting with, with this immigration thing, right? It's like Trump does not articulate in a clear way, like, what is it that he hopes will happen if Republicans perform well in the midterms? And what is it exactly that he fears will happen if Democrats perform well in the midterms. I mean, he has plenty of hits on Democrats, right? Like, they want to open the borders, which means big crime. But, like, if you just stop and think about it, like, say you believe that Democrats want to open the borders, then it means big crime. Like, Donald Trump's not going to let them do that. Right. Right? It's like, you know, if you want, like, a political analysis of, like, here's what's going to happen if we win and here's what's going to – we're not going to be able to do if we lose, he has very little to actually offer in his public – messaging. And I don't know how much that matters to people exactly, but it but it connects to what you were saying about like, you know, 
people, maybe they wanted to vote for Trump, but he's not on the ballot. And I mean, it's a problem presidents often face in the midterms is that usually you get to be president by being more charismatic than the average, like, rando House member. And like, some people are not that excited about it, and you have to give them some kind of reason why right. it's important. Well, the problem with blaming Democrats for things that aren't Democrats' faults right. <laughs> um, is that when you want to scare people about what would happen if Democrats take control while still having a Republican-controlled White House and, and possibly Republican-controlled Senate, like, like they've already tried repealing Obamacare with just Republicans. They've already tried to pass immigration policy with just Republicans. Right. They passed tax— cuts with just Republicans. But, like, you see how this becomes problematic for yeah. when you're trying to, like, create— <laughs> Do things. A, uh, a talking point on the campaign trail. Right. Let's take a break, and, and then I, I want to talk about what we know of the stakes. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. So the other problem for Republicans here is that they don't really want to talk about their legislative ideas because it's a mix of they don't have ideas that they themselves are agreed on and they don't have ideas that are really politically viable. So like there was this odd Mitch McConnell discussion with Bloomberg yesterday where, you know, they asked him about like, well, why is the budget deficit so high? Isn't it because you cut taxes so much? And he was like, no, no, no. It's because we spend so much money on Social Security and Medicare, right. which was like, this was like Democrats absolute greatest dream, right, is that, like, the leader of the Congressional Republican Party would come out and say that, no, Republicans still want to cut Social Security and Medicare after all. And to be clear, I mean, Paul Ryan said this the minute that they passed tax cuts. Right, so, right, like, right. this is not, yeah. <laughs> but then, like, some of the Bloomberg people were kind of, like, lawyering on McConnell's behalf because— it's true. Like, McConnell didn't say that if Republicans win, they're going to cut these programs. What he said was, 
it's a bipartisan problem. Right. And what we really want is for Democrats to enact these unpopular cuts that they oppose, but I favor. But I mean, it reveals, once again, if you know, like, math or how politics works, that, like, Donald Trump definitely scored, like, a political coup by, like, taking these very unpopular Republican positions and abandoning them. Right. But then, like, Republicans hadn't been pushing these unpopular ideas for no reason. Right. Like, they spend a lot of money on those programs. It was—interestingly, Trump was asked the same question in the interview with the Associated Press, and he blamed spending money on—well, not blamed. He said he had to spend money on the military and blamed all the money that he had to spend on hurricane Hurricane, relief. It was just like—because clearly he can't blame Medicare and Social Security. So it, like, shows kind of why it's so difficult for for the Republican Party right now to come forward with— (laughs) <laughs> right. And it's a, and it's a weird thing because, like, I've been covering economic policy for a long time now. And for a very long time, the budget deficit has been this kind of, like, theoretical issue that, like, naggy scolds talk about a lot, that Republicans deploy in bad faith, that blue dog Democrats flip out about, that sort of, like, CEOs use to screw with Democrats when they're in power. But there has never been, like, an actual problem where, like, you would say, my life is worse because the budget deficit is so high. So it's been a perfect time for Trump, who just says things about this that, like, aren't true. Like, oh, we had a high deficit because of hurricanes. But it always raises the question of, like, I mean, this has been sort of the question with Trump all the time. There's, like, split-screen reality, right, where it's, like, you read his interviews as a knowledgeable person. And you're, like, this does not make sense. Like, he has no idea what he's doing. And then if you ignore Trump and you just, like, look at statistics, it's, like, things are going fine in America. It's interesting also because I think, Tara, you and I spent a lot of time talking to Republicans and about Republicans. And it's interesting how the different conceptualizations of what the Republican Party looks like right now. Because you see Paul Ryan, who keeps tweeting about how wonderful the tax cut bill was and how everyone's getting back money and is notably retiring because he wants to spend more time with his family. Allegedly. (laughs) That's what he said. But then you see that among Republicans and conservatives, they've become huge fans of Mitch McConnell. They've turned him into like cocaine Mitch and he basically is just like, I'm just going to win and trigger the libs and fight and be on Twitter and be whatever. But the idea of a positive – and I don't mean positive as in good. I mean like a pro – campaign rather than the anti-campaign it seems to be being abandoned by the GOP at large that the idea of like Paul Ryan had his whole like a better way I read a better way it was not great but it's an ethos it was a policy paper it was an idea of something like ah yes this is a thing we're going to be for I mean a striking thing about the better way for example is that like one thing that they discussed in the better way is that there was a large financial crisis in the relatively recent past and then there was a financial regulation bill that Democrats voted for and Republicans voted against and so Republicans wrote down there on paper like their plan to change financial regulation in a way that they claimed would avoid the pitfalls of evil Obama, but also not just have another financial crisis. In office, they just like, they haven't done that. They've just like, they've appointed business-friendly people to the regulatory posts. My friend who works on financial regulation at Treasury says he has a lot of free time these days. But like, 
They're, yeah. they're not doing anything. Yeah, it's the idea of having a, like, this. these are the things we're going to do has been largely separated from what you're hearing from a lot of people on the right right now, which is basically just like, one, it's a fascinating nationalization of politics. Like this idea that every candidate is a combination of Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and Nancy Pelosi, and that every Democratic candidate must be fought as such. And this idea of like, this is an anti-campaign. Like if you don't want creeping socialism or creeping Sharia or anything else that creeps. You have to fight against Democrats because it's it's a defense mechanism. And it's so interesting to me because I'm like, Republicans are in charge of all three branches of the federal government and have control of most of the governor's mansions and state houses across the country. And yet they are still running a campaign that like they are one Democratic vote away from like turning into France. And it's so interesting because the Republicans who had a like, we have a plan and we have things we're for and we could come together with our Democratic colleagues on something or another, but we won't. That has largely been abandoned. Now it's just like, we must trigger the libs and oppose socialism. And if we maintain power, then who knows what will happen. But this is the last, you know, it's again, it's like the Flight 93 election all over again, which is very strange because now, and then conservatives are also like, oh, but Democrats are acting like this is the last election. I'm like, you all are. Everybody is. Yeah. Well, it could be. I mean. (laughs) Um, No, but I mean, look, part of the context for this, right, is that like people are really geared up about politics in America in 2018, right? But, like, objective conditions in the country for typical people are better than they were two or three years ago. Like, I think, like, that part of the Republican pitch, I heard Ted Cruz saying this, that a debate would better work, like, that is true, and it makes a lot of sense, and it means that there is not a ton of like objective pressure to say like we are going to enact big changes that like radically alter things. So they have this pitch, right, that Democrats are like an angry mob that's going to destroy social order, which is like if you wanted to explain to somebody like what is conservatism like abstracted away from like all time and place and specifics, that is the message, right? Like if you put the left in charge, the social order is going to collapse. But, I mean, it shows that there's a deep sort of incoherence, right? Like, there's a large deficit. It's growing relatively rapidly. It's not a huge problem today, but if you don't do anything ever, like, it becomes a problem. And Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump are, like, the two most important people in the Republican Party, and they are, like, in fundamental disagreement about the issue, but they're, like, they're best friends now. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> well, I don't know if they're best friends, but yes, they are. I mean, they claim to be, right? Yes, they, they're yeah, – yes, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I mean, it's like sometimes you have a situation in which it's like these are factions and they're fighting. And like nobody is fighting in the Republican Party. No, but also we're less than a month away from the elections. <laughs> sure. But I mean, it's been that way sort of the whole time, right? I mean, you covered months ago the sort of House Republicans put together this uh, like welfare reform package. Right. And then Senate leadership just kind of like, I don't know what they did. They like stuck it in a filing cabinet. Yes, that's that's often what Senate <laughs> leadership does when they get a welfare reform package. Well, they are currently warring um, over the farm bill about, about snap cuts. So. Oh, right. What's happening in the farm bill? Uh, well, they just can't agree on whether or not to cut food aid. And the Senate does not want to and the House does. So... 
Absolutely. We have no yeah. farm bill. It's a classic. Great, great. Um, but I mean, I guess this is important because, you know, if you look at the numbers, right, the numbers right now say Democrats will more likely than not have a House majority. And more importantly, I think, like, will almost certainly gain House seats, right? Whereas on the Senate, it's the opposite. Like, Republicans will probably hold the Senate and have a good chance, and will almost certainly hold the Senate and have a good chance of gaining Senate seats, right? Right. So if the polls are like a little bit off, right, if Republicans do a little bit better than expected, they're still going to lose ground in the House, just not lose the majority. But they'll gain seats in the Senate. And in a practical sense, like it's the Senate that's been holding back action on a bunch of things. Right. So, I mean, I think, like, a topic that can be alluded to people in these, like, there's, like, so much crazy shit happens in American politics. But, like, in a concrete sense, right, like, the House keeps passing, basically, how would you characterize these bills? Like, they're, I mean, they're just partisan, like, they're almost symbolic at this point because the Senate's not doing anything with them. But the but Republicans are passing their kind of like wish list of conservative policy. Right. And it's like basically like cutting spending on programs for poor people. Right. There's a lot of that. Right. <laughs> Every spending bill that they have passed, everything that they have not needed bipartisan support on, they have tried to cut spending right. for poor people. And so and so they have like 51 senators, which is not a lot. And so Mitch McConnell keeps, like, not moving bills like that. Right. They just humor the House to do their own thing, and then they do their own thing, and then the House has to agree to what the Senate does. Right. And at least potentially, I mean, you know, if they gain, like, one Senate seat, that that math doesn't really change, right? But if they did really well, you know, then who knows, right? Yeah, I mean, the dynamic would really shift. You And you would see kind of the, the, the power of the super conservatives in the House kind of play out. Right. Um, and this is like, strikingly, though, like Donald Trump is very actively campaigning for Republican Senate candidates. But like, this is not the pitch that he's making, right? Like, he's not out there with... Kramer in North Dakota and whoever in Indiana and and uh, Morrissey and in West Virginia, he's not like saying like you got to send these people to Washington so that they can work with me to like take everybody's food stamps away, right? But like that's actually what's its issue, right? Yeah, I mean the pitch is what we talked about before. It's the if we if you don't win, then open borders, and, <laughs> open and borders crime. and socialism and creeping things. Everything's gonna creep. And it's then, like a TLC video out here. <laughs> and then conversely, right? If I was trying to make the case, I mean this is tough because you can't admit it publicly, but it's like if you're trying to make the case to like a Trump fan who wasn't like a super loyal voter previously for like why Republicans need to take the House. It's that they don't want Democrats to be able to subpoena everything, right? Like that's like, – like a real thing that a Democratic majority could do is like launch a billion investigations, not actually open the borders. Yes. Yeah. But do conservatives talk about that? I think everyone is doing this. But a lot of conservatives seem to be talking in a very like the world will stop – on election day. Uh-huh. And then after that, who the hell knows what's going to happen? But the idea of what would be desirable, 
like we talked on Friday on the Weeds talking about how Mitch McConnell said that like if he gets a 60 vote whip count, he like might introduce criminal justice reform. Uh-huh. And you're seeing that, you know, from a number of GOP leaders saying like, well, if this happens, we might do it. But it's more like in the purely hypothetical and it's not something they're pitching to voters in any way or pitching to one another about uh-huh. like this is something that we would want to do. And, you know, you saw that a little bit this week with um, there was a piece in National Review talking about, you know, the tough things that are going to have to happen to deal with the deficit. But it seems to be, again, tough things that they're just like, well, we'll get to it eventually. Uh-huh. They'll have to, but they'll get to it. And it'll be hard. But it's interesting how it's like it's not really coming up as something that they have to go do. It's more standing athwart Democrats yelling, no, and we want to trigger you about things. Well, I mean, what's interesting, I mean, something, you know, people have been emailing, asking me about is like, why are conservatives so mad all the time? Um, Well, I think that, I mean, this is a large discussion that's probably better for like another venue that would be large and Big. But I think that Elizabeth Brunig, who's at Washington Post, raised the point that liberals have control of, quote unquote, the culture, but they don't have control of politics. And conservatives believe that they have control of politics, but they don't have any control of culture. And the ideal for both would be to have both. The ideal for liberals would be to be like, have as much power in kind of the halls of actual power that some people believe that they do in kind of popular culture and music and film. And conservatives spend a lot of time being very upset that despite holding actual real political power virtually coast to coast, that somehow that does not mean that like they are getting the same kind of cultural respect that they believe that they're do. Planned and, Parenthood is still funded. Yeah, Planned Parenthood still, but like that's well, but th- I mean that's the question though, right? So I mean, it's like there's a realm of policy, and then there's like a realm right beyond policy. And conservatives talk about this. They're like, you know, if we actually had power, you know, Planned Parenthood wouldn't still be receiving federal funding, and Obamacare wouldn't exist, and the, the whole bunch of other things wouldn't have happened. But the fact that that is more about like the Republican Party being bad at politicking. And less to do with the fact that, like, Democrats have anything to do with how that has not yet happened doesn't seem to come up. But it's this idea that, like, real power would be that there'd be more conservative celebrities besides Kanye West or that they'd have the cultural cachet that they believe that Democrats and liberals do. And so, you know, they're very mad. I I think I wrote something about this around the 2016 election, but the fact that on the day of the election and on inauguration day, like people did not bend the knee to the GOP that, you know, people who wear MAGA hats in D.C. did not become like super popular, that the end of history did not come. There was not this like grand moment upon which Democrats admitted like, ah, yes, you have triggered us into irrelevance. And instead, you know, Democrats went and won a bunch of special elections and started talking about DSA and start, you know, like there wasn't like, ah, yes, you were right and we were wrong. I think that there's still a lot of ire about that, that like GOP voters in Iowa still have kids who go to Iowa State and join DSA or like that on these individual level, there wasn't like the grand sweeping moment that I think Steve Bannon talked about. And a lot of these kind of Trumpian figures had kind of talked up as being a potential option. 
if what it means to make America great again, right, is like fundamentally not that we will have a low unemployment rate, but that we will restore, I don't know what, like the sociocultural aspects of how people think they remember like 1950s patriarchal norms functioning. Like, I guess Republicans really haven't made America great again. Like, they don't... I mean, it's like, it's striking to me that, like, Brett Kavanaugh was the only thing that seems to have, like, genuinely, like, excited conservatives the whole time. Like, the equally, if not more so, conservative Neil Gorsuch, who, like, wasn't accused of being a rapist. Right. He was, like, getting to fight a battle in the political arena that, like, more directly touched on something they actually care about which is, like, not jurisprudence, but, like, putting left activists in their place. Right. Like it, it, It's interesting because you see um, in Trumpy Twitter handles, uh, they use the hashtag KAG, which is Keep America Great, because there's this idea that, like, ah, because Trump is here, America is now great, and yet they're still very mad, and that's very strange. Right, but, I mean, it's also, it's... <sighs> It makes for an interesting midterm pitch, right? Because I think it works in presidential politics, right? Because, like, the presidency is a policymaking institution. But it's also unquestionably, like, a venue of celebrity politics. And it's a cultural venue as well. Right. Like, like Barack Obama being president, like, meant something. And Donald Trump being president means something very different. And, like, a woman being president would mean something different again. And Congress just isn't like that. The problem facing Republicans right now is is something that I guess we could have seen from the beginning is that, I mean, Trump cared about winning. He didn't have a very distinct policy agenda that he was particularly married to. But to win, he had to kind of attach himself to some popular policy agendas. Like, for example, he said he wouldn't touch Medicare and Social Security. And that happened to be at odds with the Republican Party. And like when Republicans stuck with him, thinking, okay, well, he's not really married to anything and and we can just attach our own agenda to him. Right. That now runs into the problems where, like, okay, that worked for the presidency, but, like, you can't make that same pitch for Congress in the midterms. Right. Because those two things are directly at odds with each other. Right. And, I mean, it's just in the operation of American politics, right, like, Congress is, in fact, very important, right? Like, Congress is the driver of public policy, and it's why the Trump-era Republicans were able to make a lot of things happen, even though Donald Trump is not that focused on on policy-type stuff. But it doesn't resonate culturally in the same kind of way, particularly because, like, in each district, you can sort of have your own people, right? So it's like if Democrats want to run, like, a white guy veteran with a funny regional accent in, like, 8 million, like, Obama to Trump districts, like, they can do that. But also it just doesn't, like, make that kind of impact on people, right? It it matters because Congress does things, not because the social identity of the Speaker of the House like gives people a lot of a lot of feelings in the culture. And it it makes it a lot more, I think, concrete in a way that's just sort of at odds with Trump's project, right? Like Jane, like yeah. you were talking about like they're upset about their clout and culture, but it's like yeah. Don, Donald Trump like was He's the was, culture he's the culture candidate. But it's like he was on television yes. before he was president. Right. 
I'm not sure if there's been more recent polling since the Kavanaugh hearings, but something that was fascinating was that there was some polling saying that a lot of Republicans, Republican voters were listening to Trump, who kept tweeting about a red wave and saying, like, they were not as motivated to vote because they didn't think it would be necessary because the idea of a blue wave was fake news. And so having a cultural candidate, having someone like Trump, who is not, as Tara said, he's not wedded to a particular policy goal, while Trump is popular with Republican voters— Congress is not popular with Republican voters. Those are two very different things. And it's interesting how Trump's role as this cultural entity is both very helpful to him politically, but not very helpful to the people who want to be elected to help him do things. But I mean, in part, that's because I have always felt from the beginning that Trump does not fully understand the extent of his personal exposure right. to a Democratic House of Representatives, right? Like you saw it in that AP interview where he was like, well, it's not my fault if Republicans lose the House. Right. I mean, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, right? But it was like— I mean, he definitely has a role in it, right? <laughs> right. But also it's important to him. Like it's his responsibility. Yeah. You know, this is like those of us who parent toddlers, you know, like a concept you try to instill in kids, right? It's like there's like a metaphysics of whose fault is it, and then there's just like a reality of like who caused it, like what do you need to do, and then what are the consequences, right? Like there's a lot of stuff that Donald Trump doesn't want to see happen uh, that House Republicans are keeping bottled up for him, and, you know, a lot of them are in trouble because of how much they've they've done, right? I mean, the polling for them is is quite bad. But if you look at the couple of House Republican incumbents in tough races who are doing well, right? I mean, I think Heard in Texas and uh, Corbello in Florida, and I don't really know how to say Valadao's name in California. Maybe Valadeo. that's it. Valadeo. See? <laughs> you know, those, particularly Heard and Corbello, are guys who've like They've, like, done the normal politics thing and, like, tried to distance themselves from the president who's unpopular in their district. But, like, almost nobody in the caucus is doing that. Yeah, I mean, they've played an interesting line of they've tied themselves very closely with the Republican establishment and they have stood in lockstep with the Republican Party, but they have distanced themselves from Trump. And you saw that particularly when it came to issues like immigration, where they were kind of, like, the big pushers of slightly more moderate but still conservative immigration right. And they've had, like, very little concrete impact. But it seems oh, to have not, made no, a almost. big— di- <laughs> But it seems like it made a big difference politically. Yeah, it seems like in their districts, they are well-liked enough and have enough kind of clout as someone as an independent right. Republican. And what's interesting is, like, Republicans really might not be facing this House wipeout if there were two dozen— members who were more like that, yeah. right? Like if some of these members like Eric Paulson in, in Minnesota and um, Barbara Comstock in Virginia, Northern Virginia suburbs. Yeah, there's just a number of members who've been very obviously vulnerable, just like from the fact that Donald Trump unexpectedly won the election, right? Like representing districts where he performed very poorly. And they've done so little to distance themselves from him. And they are now like almost all losing, oftentimes quite badly, and getting even, like, abandoned by House Republican super PAC and things like that. And 
I mean, it's just interesting to speculate. It, it, it seems like in, in many ways American politics might be in a healthier place if people in that position had, like, done what would have been good for their own political survival. Uh, but it's extremely rare, right? I mean, there's been this tremendous fear of Donald Trump, right. I think, like, coursing through the Republican Party. Well, I think they saw people like Jeff Flake and— Bob Corker, and even to some extent Mark Sanford, who is part of this very conservative faction of of the House that has really done a lot to back up Trump in Congress, um, but himself was kind of more critical of the president. And of course, he got primaried out because of Trump's endorsement of yeah. his challenger. So I think there is a fear because they've seen some of these test cases not work out well. Uh-huh. But I think that there is something to be said about people who are just genuinely popular in their own districts. And, you know, in my hometown of Cincinnati, there's Representative Steve Shabbat, who is plus nine against his competitor. It hasn't really been that much in question. And he's talked about how, like, you know, I voted for Trump in the general, but he wasn't my first, second, or third choice. And you can say things like that when you're in a district where people already know who you are. You know, Steve Shabbat's been in Ohio politics for a long time. He is most memorable to me for reading If You Give a Mouse a Cookie to my eighth grade class. This would have been in 2001. I have not forgotten about it. But I think that it's interesting how the localization versus nationalization of politics is playing a role because you're seeing local Republican candidates who are running ads basically accusing their opponent of either being, you know, in Arizona accusing Kirsten Cinema of being potentially a witch, but also just bringing up in all of these local races that they're basically the same thing as Nancy Pelosi. But then in a lot of these successful GOP races, there are known quantities with candidates like Steve Shabbat or Carlos Carbello. You know, Democrats are running ads against them talking about like, oh, they vote with Trump 95, 98 percent of the time. And they're not working because they're a known quantity in these local areas. Okay, so with that, I think uh, we we got to wrap up. We're getting yes. kicked out of the studio. So, you know, thanks to everybody out there for listening. Thanks to Tara for joining us today. Thanks to our producer, Griffin Tanner. And we will see you on Friday. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>